was given the opportunity to introduce our next speaker, the first thing I thought is, what father-in-law would not relish the opportunity to talk about the man who stole his only daughter? I've got to tell you, brethren, and I say this with the greatest of humility, but my children married well. I have the finest daughter-in-law, who perhaps is the most evangelistic person I have ever met in my life. And I have the finest son-in-law who will be speaking to us in just a few minutes. And not only that, but Bart is partially responsible for three of my five favorite grandchildren. Bart, Mar Bart Warren married my daughter, Laura. Ike and Jet and Jake are their children. He's preached for the South Green Street Church of Christ in Glasgow, Kentucky since 2010. He is the vice president of the Warren Christian Apologetics Center and serves as an associate editor of the journal Sufficient Evidence. He facilitates courses in apologetics and ethics in the graduate program of this uh, school of preaching. And one last thing, and I mean this sincerely and humbly, he is one of the two answers to prayers that my wife and I prayed for many, many years. I appreciate that introduction. I um, am thankful for Mark Hanstein and his family, absolutely, and I would love to share with you some of the funny things that we talked about as we drove from Glasgow, Kentucky to here in those 16 hours worth of time and uh, teasing each other about those days when I was uh, trying to convince his daughter to marry me. But uh, I think I would be in a lot of trouble if we did that. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for coming back from the break. I'm looking forward to spending a few moments uh, studying with you the assignment that we've been given from 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Uh, the passage that we're going to study is a passage that's extremely familiar to us. Uh, it's one that particularly, there's one paragraph, there's one chunk of this passage that is very often quoted. Most of the time, I think we hear it, it's not unusual to hear these lines uh, at weddings as a man and a woman are pledging their devotion to one another. The minister will very often read from, from this passage. And that's a reasonable thing to do. I'm not saying that shouldn't be done. I think it's a good practice. Because from this passage, we're going to see that this passage will, will celebrate love, but it's also a challenge. This passage challenges the audience and thus those to whom it's being given. It challenges them to live a certain way, to live up to a certain standard. 
And a wedding is a good time to do that. A wedding is a good time to say, you've got a lot out in front of you, we're excited for you, but you've got high standards to live up to, especially as you're being joined together here in front of the Lord and by Him, you've got a high standard to live up to. And so what I want us to see as we, as we go through this passage, this passage is not just mere sentiment. This passage is not just about just feelings of emotions and all the things that are wrapped up in the grandeur of a, a wedding day, a marriage ceremony. There's a lot more to it. In fact, I'm convinced that this passage here in 1 Corinthians 13, which is our assignment, this passage is one that is really a, a corrective this is a passage that is given in the midst of a situation where there's problems with unity, there's problems with, with fighting and arguing, there's problems with the way that spiritual gifts are being used and they need to use them the proper way, there's problems with the way they're uh, participating in the Lord's Supper, and the corrective to all of that is to love each other the right way. If you will love each other the way the Lord commands, if you will love each other the way the Lord has demonstrated then those factions, those arguments, those fights, the divisions in the Lord's Supper, the way that they're using spiritual gifts, all those kinds of things will melt away, fade away, and they'll be living and acting the way the Lord would expect. Let me show you some things that I mean here. Go through back to 1 Corinthians 1. Just very quickly hit some of these, these highlights here. It says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, they've been, they've been quarreling with each other. I hear about the quarreling among you, my brothers. In chapter 3, at verse 3, he says, there's jealousy and strife among you. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, he speaks of there being this, this strife and you've, you've gone out of your way to be puffed up and you're fighting against one another. And that idea of pride is going to be mentioned again and again, 4, 18 and 19, 8, 1. And so here's the point. They're arguing, they're fighting, they've got factions and divisions that are building up. And so my question to you would be this. How could this family of God, or any other, where it might be here in Denver or wherever you might be from, how could we ever be properly identified as disciples of Jesus if this is the way we're behaving? As it says in John 13, 35, the way we'll be known as disciples of Jesus is our love for each other. And if they're being known as those that divide and argue and wrangle and fight just with each other, that's not the image they want to portray. And so he says to them, there's a, there's a better way. There's a better way to exist. There's a better way to, to be with one another. And he says it's just like this. At the end of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Read with me, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then here's the passage that we know so well. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the first part of verse 8 says, love never ends. We know those other things will, will pass away. 
We'll stop right there as we consider just this idea of, of demonstrating and living in love and pause for the, the spiritual gift conversation. What I want you to see and what I want us to understand from this passage, what the Lord has shared with us here, is that love is to be the pattern, the way of life for the Christian community, for them there at Corinth and for us wherever we might be. Love to be the very way of life for those who claim to be disciples of Jesus. I mean, the two greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 37 through 39, love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That should be the defining idea of who we are. We love God with everything, and that means, in turn, we love others. Love should be the norm rather than the exception. Love should guide the expression of any and all gifts right here in this context where in chapter 12 and chapter 14, so before and after our passage, he's talking to them about the, the utilization of spiritual gifts. And so if you're not using those gifts, as we read a moment ago, if you're not using them in a place of love, then they're worthless. So love should be the guiding expression for using any and all gifts. The description of love that's given here Many have suggested, and I would say it's probably a, a pretty good suggestion, that here in verses 4 through 8, when it says love is this and love is that, that, this is a description of the way that Jesus loves. Well, certainly that's true. But that being the case, that also means that that's the way we have to love. If we're patterning ourselves after the Lord and He loves that way, then this is the way we're to love. It just makes sense. And so I would suggest that this is the kind of love that absolutely is to be demonstrated between husbands and wives. But it's not limited to that. This is the kind of love that's to be demonstrated between parents and children. The kind of love that should be demonstrated between coworkers. The kind of love that should be demonstrated between neighbors. The kind of love that should be demonstrated between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as he addresses this group here in Corinth, he says, this is the way you're to be. This is the way you're to treat each other. This is the way that love should look. This is what love looks like. So what I want us to do now is take a few moments to sort of go through a couple of these verses here and make note of some of the things that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to share with the Christians in Corinth. Let's start with this. Motivation, foundation. In verses 1 through 3, we see that love is the motivational foundation for all that's done. All actions ultimately are futile if they're not done in love. You have these gifts and you use these gifts, even those that are identified as, as spiritual gifts, they're eventually going to leave one feeling empty and hollow. If you're just using it for yourself and not for others, using it for yourself and not for the glory of God, it's going to use you feeling spent and washed up and used rather than picked up, built up, edified, and moving to a place of good things for the Lord. So based upon this passage, it's been stated that any speech that's given without love, all you are is a loud, lifeless noise machine. And that's not what we want to be, is it? Where we speak, whenever we share a message, whether it's one of ultimate importance like the gospel, we want to be known as just a talking head, just a noise-making machine. No. When what we share comes from a place of concern and compassion and love, it makes the impact that's intended. Even acts that otherwise look like expressions of love, like charitable contributions. When somebody makes a big fat contribution to some cause, 
the first thought is, boy, there's somebody who's got their head and heart in the right place. But if you make those contributions, you make those big gifts without coming from a place of love, there's no redeeming value in it for yourself. There's no spiritual benefit in it if it's not done in love. We're, no, we're reminded in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that the love of God was manifested, demonstrated clearly towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did what he did because of love. So what about us? I'm reminded of what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The motivating factor, the foundational element of all of this is that we gain nothing without love. So let's look at ourselves honestly. It's a, it's a much, much easier task to say, let's evaluate others and see how loving they are. It's a different thing when I have to say, what is it that I'm doing? What motivates me for what I say and what I do? If I cannot say that I'm acting out of love, then to use Paul's language from the end of 1 Corinthians 13, I got a lot of growing up to do. There's certain things we got to leave behind. There he's talking about the, the spiritual gifts, of course, but in the same way, if I am not motivated by love, I've got growing up to do. Wouldn't you say it's a rather childish, it's a rather immature act to be one who's always about me, me, me. That's what, that's what babies do, right? When they start screaming and crying their heads off. I'm hungry. I'm not satisfied. I need something to change. It's all here. But we say, that's, that's, a, that's a baby. That's a small one. And as they grow, they'll grow out of that. As they grow, they'll, we will instruct them. We'll teach them how to be more about others. And so the idea of maturity and getting past childish things is to be more others-focused. If I'm 45 years old and I'm still all about me and the things I do and the checks I write, whatever it might be, is still about my glory, I've got a lot of growing up to do. So the motivational factor here and all the things he's saying is it must be done in love. So let's look at the descriptions that start in verse 4. In verse 4 he says that first, first line, love is patient. Some have said it this way, love, what love does is love waits patiently. That's a, a good description of what love is. It, it's the one, it's the person that waits patiently. Now that could be uh, connected to so many different areas in our lives. Love's patient. Love waits for the right time. We could talk about something as sensitive as uh, young people getting married. Love waits patiently. Or we could talk about the way that we just deal with people. Deal with the person at the bank. Deal with the person at, in the next cubicle at our office. Love waits patiently. We deal with each other in a, from a spirit of patience because of love. This idea would be that there's no rush to judgment. Some, one way to translate this would be that what love does is love suffers long. Doesn't get into hasty and unfair conclusions so here's what often happens when love is going to suffer long and when love's going to seek to be patient. The people who really try to show love, the love of Jesus, are very often going to be imposed upon. Do you ever feel like I'm being imposed? People are taking advantage of my kindness. Sometimes that's what love will do. It will suffer long. And some people out there might think, well, that's a weakness. 
If, you, if one thing happens, you need to stand up and say it. You need to fire off a tweet or you need to stand up and get in somebody's face. You need to let them know right now. That's not the way the Lord would have us operate. Love suffers long and waits patiently. But very few would ever choose to be opposed, imposed upon for the good of others. That takes character. That takes virtue. That takes the heart of Christ. And this type of love is rarely seen. And so right here, right out of the bat, love is patient. Love suffers long. Already so many of us are in the hole. We haven't even got past the first description. In order to imitate God, as we we're told to do in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of the Father. We have to be patient like he was. Second Peter th- or is, I should say, patient like he is. Second Peter 3, 9, 2 Peter 3, 15, Romans 2, 4, again and again, the Lord is described as being patient to our good. And so let's be thankful for God's love for us that's been manifested in his patience. How thankful we should be that in those times of our exasperation, in those times of our lashing out in anger, that the Lord just didn't run out of patience with us and just do away with us there. His patience and his long-suffering nature is for our good and for our hope. Just like it says in Ephesians 4.32 that we've been forgiven, so we ought to forgive others. In the same way, I would suggest to you, the Scripture would suggest to you, the Lord has shown patience to us, and we ought to show patience to others. That's what love would do. So let's demonstrate our love for others by being patient. Let's wait patiently for the right time to speak, the right time to share. Let's wait patiently to respond. Love is patient. It suffers long. But the next thing it says there to carry out that same idea is that it's kind and, and doesn't envy and it doesn't boast and it's not, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. I would suggest that what we're saying is this. Love's just selfless. Love's selfless. To be kind. How often is it the description that others would use of us? If we were to do a survey right now and, and people are described, the others, that, the people that know you, how many would say, you are kind? I hope that it would be 100%. But very often that's an area that we need to grow in as well because too often we're about self rather than others. Would honesty dictate that you would admit that you easily get jealous of the attention that others receive? You know, in a time like this when you have... Uh, a bunch of preachers gathered together. It's easy for preachers to get jealous. Why didn't I get that assignment? Why didn't they? Love doesn't think that way. It's not a competition. We're on the same team. Amen. Amen. But boy, oh boy, it's not limited to us, is it? Every last person oftentimes goes through situations in life, whether it's within the little family unit, under your own roof, at your job, at your school, so often someone else will get an accolade, someone else will get a pat on the back, and maybe the first thought is, wait a minute, don't you know I did 99% of that work? Where's my thanks and praise? Love doesn't operate that way. Love doesn't work overtime to get the spotlight on itself. What about this? Do you easily get irritated when things don't go your way? It says love is patient and kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not arrogant, not rude, not worried about those kinds of things. On and on we could go, but let me pause and just say this. This is about sacrifice, and this is about putting others first. It's been said that the key to the nature of love is simply concern and respect for others. 
And so love is not self-serving. It's not preoccupied with the interests of self. Like it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 3 of Jesus, Jesus did not please himself. Jesus went to the cross for us, not to, not to please himself, but for us. Love is seen in personal sacrifices made in order to, to lift others up. We've already mentioned Romans 5, 8, but we know John 3, 16, and John 15, 13, and on and on. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that Jesus showed his love by giving himself as a sacrifice so that others could be given life. Look at 5C, the last part of verse 5. Love is not irritable or resentful. You might have a translation that instead of saying it's not resentful, it might say something like, thinks no evil. The idea there may very well be that it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, doesn't keep a scorecard of all the times that it's been wronged. Here's some phrases that would fit this. Letting it go. Taking the high road. Being the bigger person. You ever heard any of those descriptions? Ever had a parent say that's to, their, to, to you as their kid, that's what you need to do? You need to be the bigger person. You need to just take the high road. What that's saying is don't keep a record of the wrongs done to you. Don't keep a scorecard of how many times someone else has hurt you, wounded you, injured you in any kind of way. Now, that's not easy to do. It's not, it's not easy very often to just let things go. At least it's not for me. I seek to grow in this area. I hope maybe you probably do too. But this is what love looks like. Love is in that place that says, because I'm going to open myself up, because I'm going to actually put myself in a place where I'm going to show you love, I'm going to become vulnerable. And to become vulnerable means you put yourself in a spot where you might get hurt. But that's what love does. Love is to put yourself in a position where you're going to have the highest of highs, but you'll also have the lowest of lows. If we love, we will get hurt. It's just that simple. We'll get hurt when the people that we love so dearly pass from this life. That hurts. There is hope for the Christian, obviously, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't grieve like the world does, but we still grieve. We grieve with hope, but we still cry. We still hurt. If you love somebody so much and when they pass, that hurts. But there's also other situations. We get hurt when the people that we love wound us through the things they say or the things they do or the things they don't do. There's all kinds of disappointments that come along with love. And here's my point. If I'm keeping score, if I'm keeping score of all the times that you hurt me even though I've claimed to love you, if I'm keeping score in that kind of situation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw things back in your face and I'm going to bring them back up and I'm going to tell you all the times you've injured me and I'm going to display the very opposite of what the Lord calls us to here. Love, as it says in this passage, is not resentful, doesn't keep track and doesn't hold on. Love lets it go for the other's good. But then there's this. I want to spend a few minutes here in verse 6. I think this is an important passage, especially in the, the cultural situation in which we find ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6 says this. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Let me say that one more time just for clarity. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, 
love rejoices with the truth. So let me try and make that clear. If it couldn't be any more clear from what the Lord's already said. Love does not equate automatically to approval. Love does not automatically equate to acceptance. Amen? Love does not automatically mean I approve of what you do. As a matter of fact, the opposite's the case. It says here, love in no way will celebrate or uphold that which is wicked. Love doesn't celebrate sin. Love upholds the truth. So look closely at the two parts of this verse. Love's not going to rejoice at wrongdoing because there will be no celebrating sin. That's not love. Love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices when there's righteousness because love knows righteousness is to be upheld. The spotlight's to be on righteousness and goodness and truth. Uh, Thomas Sowell, a famous public intellectual and economist, he said this, and I want to share it with you. If you want to help someone, you'll tell them the truth. If you want to help yourself, you'll tell the people what they want to hear. You see, which one's love? Love's telling people the truth. If you care about them, you'll tell them the truth. If you just care about yourself, you'll tell others whatever they want to hear. Too often, the easy way out is to support just whatever's popular. Instead of having an uncomfortable conversation, instead of experiencing possible backlash, let's just remain quiet. Or even worse, instead of just remaining quiet, we might even vocalize support for sin so that we don't get labeled and get put into the wrong category. You know, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. This verse, as well as many, many others, John 8, 32, John 17, 17, Colossians 1, 5, and 6, and on and on we could go. This verse emphasizes that there is such a thing as the truth. And that means there is such a thing as what is right. And on the other side, there's such a thing as what's wrong. There's a standard. There is right and wrong. And so the point here, and we'll make it even clearer in just a moment, is that when you and I seek to say that we are people who love, we're people who follow and adhere to the commands of passages like 1 Corinthians 13, we have to be careful about what it is that we're upholding and celebrating, what it is that we're supporting. It's going to start right here with us. It's going to start right here in my own heart. Am I willing to hear a criticism from someone else? Am I willing to hear someone else say, you know what, I love you, and so therefore you might need to think about this. Am I going to come back? Well, if you loved me, you just let me do what, if you, if you loved me, Someone else has said, I'm loved well when people help expose destructive feelings in me. I'm loved well when others expose destructive behaviors in my life. And he said, there's something redemptive about love when I can acknowledge that I'm not perfect. So you see, it starts here. Have you heard this kind of sentiment from the, just, this is a too general of a term, but from the culture today, have you heard this sentiment? This is who I am, this is me, Deal with it. You heard that kind of sentiment? This is who I am. You better just get with the program. You better just deal with it. This is what love says. This is who I am. Lord, wash me, cleanse me, mold me, make me whole. Right? David in Psalm 51, verse 2, verse 10. Wash me. Give me a, a clean heart. Make me more like you. This is me. Help me. This is me, I'm weak, I'm a sinner, I need the blood of Jesus. The sentiment that says, this is me, deal with it, 
is not one that in any way, shape, or fashion is coming from or looking for love. It's looking for others to capitulate. And that's a, that's a, a rule, that's a lording over people rather than a, a loving people. Right here in this very book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a situation where in 1 Corinthians 1 through 5, Paul is going to deal with a sinful situation, and he says, you've been celebrating this. You, you've boasted. You should be mourning, but you've been boasting about this sinful situation with a man that have his, has his father's wife. That cannot be. To celebrate sin like that, he says, that's going to bring condemnation. To celebrate sin like that's going to bring the wrath of God. You can't celebrate sin. Instead, the other side, go to 1 Corinthians 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, we see a situation where rather than celebrating sin, they celebrate the overcoming of sin. He said, Here, such were some of you, you were you know, involved in adultery and in drunkenness and in homosexuality. You were involved in all these sins. But verse 11 says, but you've been washed. You've been justified. In other words, he celebrates the fact that you've overcome that sin. You celebrate the truth. So 1 Corinthians 5, you don't celebrate that. You don't celebrate sin. You celebrate the truth of overcoming it, being washed in the blood of Jesus. We hear phrases like, love is love. That's a statement you hear so much, you even see it in signs in the yard, fronts. Love is love. Or love wins. That's another famous statement about love in this culture. Now, this can be a difficult thing to stand against because we all want to be known as, as those who are loving. It's made even more difficult because of the prevailing way that, that people think. The increasing percentages of the culture that is changing the way that they think. There's a rejection of authority, a rejection of institutions, a rejection of creeds, a rejection of um, moral universalism. All those things are being rejected and they're being replaced with things like this. Intuition, personal feelings, experiences. Those are now seen as the, the places to go to be the authority for what I do and what I say. There's a demand to, to write and then rewrite the scripts about how human beings should operate. More and more and more don't want to receive any doctrine. They want to just choose. They want to follow the spiritual, fat, the spiritual path that feels the most meaningful to them. And there's a desire to create one's own, one's own rituals, one's own practices, one's own belief systems, all these things. And the idea of love today is that there's no borders, no restrictions. It's just love is love. And we all know that isn't true. We all know it. Every human knows it. No matter what they might protest and might say, all of us know that isn't true. Let me give you this, this one example, and I think that takes care of it. If all it is is just approval of actions and approval of choices, if all love is is just saying love is love and that's it, then every single parent has made mistakes in this area. How many of you have said to your children, because I love you, I'm going to approve of your choices to play on the highway. Because I love you, I'm going to approve of your choices as a two or three-year-old to play with all my knives. Because I love you, I just approve of your choices. <laughs> no, no parent has ever said that and won't. We all know that there's, there are restrictions, there are borders, and that love necessitates training. Love necessitates guidance. And that means that love demands there be discipline and correction. This means pointing out 
This is what's true and good and beautiful. This is what's sinful and hurtful. And that's been the case. That's been the demand of God and his people for all time. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. And when he says, I'm going to give you these laws. I'm going to give you these commands. And what are you to do? Give them to your kids. Show them that there's restrictions. Show them that there's a a standard, that there's an authority. You show them that. That's what parents do. It is not love that just celebrates sin with the refusal to voice disapproval. Love and truth are linked together. True love would never celebrate sin. Love rejoices in the truth. Then there's this. Verse 7. He says that love bears all things. Some have translated this as love always protects. This is because the, the wording here is that about that which is either upholding or covering. The image is, is that of a structure that's going to keep those that are under it fortified and safe and protected. What love does is it bears the weight of the pain and the ugliness that's bombarding so that the people that are loved don't have to bear it. Again, isn't that a, a picture of Jesus? He became sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, so that we could be righteous. How thankful we should be that he sought to love us in a way that would bear us up and hold us up and protect us from the ugliness and the pain that was out there. And that should motivate us to seek to protect others in the same way. And then there's this. In chapter 13, beginning at verse 7, the last part of verse 7, it says, not only does love bear all things, but it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. Love believes the best, gives the benefit of the doubt, and then continues to desire the best for others. I think sometimes that's also a challenge for us. Being one who says, I give you the benefit of the doubt. And again, that should be from in our own homes with our spouse, our children, to the people we come in contact with just rarely. I give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the space to work things out, the space to make things right. I'm going to believe the best about you because that's what the Lord calls me to do. And then he says this, that really and truly divine love has no stopping point. How thankful we should be that God just keeps on loving us in spite of ourselves. Now notice I didn't say there's not a time where the wrath of God won't be meted out. We've already seen that. Absolutely, judgment day is coming. Acts chapter 17 makes it plain. The day has been fixed. Judgment is coming for those who don't know the Lord. But the love of God doesn't stop. He continues to love us. He continues to call us. He continues to hope that and by his being patient that we will come back to him. How thankful we should be that God keeps loving us in spite of our sin. So let's close with this. We saw in this, these, these words, love is patient, love is kind, and love bears all things. We've seen this, this description. But what about when we put that on people? What does love look like? What does love look like? Let me give you some biblical examples as we close. Think about patience. Think about long-suffering. Think about being willing to give second chances. 
And we think about Luke 15. And that father who's anxiously and lovingly, longingly waiting there and sees his boy who's been gone, been so wicked, such a slap in the face and the way that he treated his father with such disdain and such ugliness when he took what he wanted. I wish you were just dead. Give me what I got's coming to me and I'll go and live my life. But patient love, second chance giving love, 1 Corinthians 13, love, that father was there waiting. And when his son was coming home to the father's house, when that son finally came to himself and realized the only place that I can find protection, the only place where I will be loved with a love that bears me up is in the father's house. And he comes back and that father runs out, embraces him, puts the cloak on, the ring on, the shoes on, gets the, the lamb to be slaughtered for the feast. That's what love looks like. Love looks like the untouchable in Mark 1, verse 40. Mark 1, 40 through 42, the untouchable being touched, the outcast being included. This is the way the Lord loved those that others wouldn't love. What about Peter, speaking of second chances? Whether it's Luke 22 or Mark 16 or 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible emphasizes to us again and again and again that God, the Lord, wanted to emphasize to Peter, you've been given a second chance. Denying him three times, there in the Gospel of John being emphasized, do you love me, do you love me? He was given a second chance because that's what love being shown to him looked like. Well, of course, it's all covered by this, right? Love looks like the Son of God being nailed to a Roman cross. Romans 5, 8, John 3, 16. Love is the greatest gift shown to us. And in this context here of spiritual gifts being used and used correctly, used poorly, love is a gift that's been given to us. And now the demand is that we go and show it to others. Let us do that with the love of the Lord.